from across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm very happy being here. It's the first time I'm here in the, uh, this prestigious area in the society, in this nice area, location. Uh, I just Googled it this morning where I'm really ending up. So luckily my flight departs rather late tomorrow, so I have some time to walk around. Well, uh, yeah, I'm a space enthusiast uh, since childhood, but I never thought that uh, as a physician I could ever work in the space business. So that was just by coincidence. I, I'm a radiologist, nuclear medicine, that was my specialty. Had a private practice in Frankfurt, uh, Germany. Um, and then there was an advertisement uh, that the uh, German Aerospace uh, Agency was looking for a flight surgeon for the D2 mission, Space Lab mission. So I said, well, why not just uh, stopping for one, two, three years and doing something differently and then returning? Well, and there I am, so still in the space business. Um, I would like to give you an overview of healthcare in space. Of course, it's, it's, it's a huge uh, domain, and I think... Uh, uh, Dave Green would agree, we, we can fill more than one year uh, of a master's class uh, with all the, the elements of space medicine and what we know and what we don't know about space medicine. So I would like to give you a, an overview of uh, what we know, what we don't know, what we do, what we don't do, uh, what we are involved uh, with, uh, with our astronauts, uh, and also would like to give you a, an outlook uh, for the future. Um, but first of all, I think uh, space is something so beautiful uh, and we just uh, had a new uh, video coming out and I would just like to share it with you. It's not destiny, it's better. <laughs> Maybe we can dim the light a little bit.
Yes, you have already seen some elements that are important for medicine. Radiation, the beautiful polar lights, uh, all the environmental, mon uh, environmental systems on board, ISS power panels, uh, cooling panels, etc. And I will, as I uh, talk along, I will go into more details there. Uh, by the way, is there some CME credit for this uh, lecture? <laughs> There's one major mistake in that movie. Has anybody realized who knows something about orbital mechanics? They cut it in reverse order. The space station is flying from west to east and not from east to west. <laughs> At the end, there is the real version in the right, uh, uh, right sequence. Well, um, space medicine, uh, what is it all about? Of course, if you look into the WHO definition of health, uh, it's the mental, the physical, and the social well-being of an individual and not the absence of disease. So in principle, my office is responsible for the mental health of the astronauts, the physical health. Well, the social well-being, that is something of the agency, the family, um, the employer, etc. So uh, that is something which is not relevant for our office, uh, but of course mental health, physical health, psychology, medicine, this is the uh, main domain uh, of what we are uh, concerned with. So if we look into the, uh, break it down into uh, the different elements, um, of course we start with the astronaut selection at the very beginning. Of course we want to have very healthy, very fit, mentally and physically fit astronauts uh, to begin with uh, because we don't want to send them into space uh, just for a short duration flight, maybe only once. We want to send them twice, three times, four times. So it's a career and uh, of course if you mid of 20s, of your uh, age of 20 already uh, realize that you have a predisposition for diabetes or for uh, cardiovascular diseases, then, of course, you would not like to get somebody on board at that early stage because the career may be very limited in, in time. So it was a very rigorous selection process, and I will highlight uh, the elements of the uh, last selection that we did in 2008-2009 uh, and what were the elements. Um, of course, we then have a flight clinic, a medical clinic, uh, where we do all the examinations. Um, the Charter of ESA prohibits us uh, to duplicate uh, facilities, infrastructure that is already provided by the member states. And since DLR, the German Space Agency on which campus uh, the European Astronaut Center resides, has already an aeromedical center and has done all the astronaut selections and astronaut medical examinations through numerous years since 1978, uh, we we uh, use their facilities, their infrastructure, and have more or less outsourced uh, the flight clinic job uh, to DLR. Uh, once we have selected astronauts, we want to maintain their health and want to keep them healthy and want to help them living a healthy lifestyle. So we have a huge preventive medical program, uh, nutritionists, uh, physical fitness experts, uh, physiotherapists, to keep them healthy or to give them advice. Uh, to secure the asset uh, that the agency has invested so much. Um, then there is a strange uh, element. It's called human behavior and performance. Um, well, uh, that's a joke some people may already know um, who have listened to me before. There are two things that astronauts really hate. They don't like at all. The first thing is rectal thermometers and the second are psychologists. So, rectal thermometers, they're a more novel 
technologies um, to go by the rectal thermometers, but psychology, mental health, so that's a key element of, of space medicine. So we did a marketing trick like many companies do, we just relabeled it. Human behavior and performance sounds so beautiful. And of course we got the buy-in by the astronauts, they love human behavior and performance. And it's nothing than psychology. Of course, uh, we look into um, uh, uh, how can we form a team, how can we uh, avoid that we only uh, get a crew together that uh, has six leaders. Just imagine you have six leaders on board ISS, that's a nightmare. So you need to have people who can lead but also be followers at the same time. How can you train that? How can you uh, provide them with uh, information how to mitigate uh, stress or mitigate uh, conflicts in the crew? Um, how do you uh, communicate with the ground? How can you tell the ground people, well, you're not well communicating with the, with the team? All that is in the domain of uh, human behavior and performance on both sides. It's the crew, but also the ground uh, personnel, especially for long-duration flights. And this will become even more important if we uh, leave low Earth orbit and go beyond low Earth orbit. We are the family physicians of the astronauts, uh, of course. Um, when you're primarily working with healthy people, day in and day out, you lose your clinical capabilities. Uh, please don't come to me if you don't feel good today. Uh, that may not be the best physician you see in this room. Um, and the same is true for all of us in the space medicine domain. Uh, the job is very demanding from a time perspective, from a travel perspective, that unfortunately we still have not found a clever way to really provide uh, continued medical education, to really provide clinical expertise throughout our career. Just reconsidering how we are uh, dealing with our job in the near future, but that is an issue. Uh, so we are very often the point of contact, at least within a network of clinics, physicians in the area of Cologne, Bonn, or in Houston, or Moscow, or Tokyo, uh, or Montreal, or wherever the astronauts um, are going to, to be trained. Uh, that at least they get uh, the important information where to go uh, if their kid gets sick or uh, the spouse gets sick, for example. Um, one thing we don't do, and that has to be very clear, is research. We are the operational physicians. We provide medical care to the astronauts. We are not involved in science. And that's is a good way to do, do that, and all space agencies do it the same way. Because we are the advocates of the human rights of the astronauts vis-a-vis -vis the agency, vis-a-vis -vis the scientists. So we can veto, we can say no. This astronaut is not participating today in this study, and we don't need to provide any rationale. That is Helsinki Declaration, that is informed consent, that is what a test subject is allowed to do. If we would be involved in science ourselves, we have a conflict of interest. And that's why all space agencies have a very distinct split to life sciences and operational medicine. Of course, uh, unfortunately, we were living on, on two different planets for a long period of time, the scientists and the operational people, and we didn't even talk to each other. Sometimes we even hated each other because they wanted science and we said, well, we want science, but under certain boundary conditions. Um, and maybe since five, six years, uh, we are trying to bridge that gap. We have one person or one team in, in, in our space medicine team that is looking across the gap. What do the scientists offer in terms of technology, in terms of knowledge that we can use to become better in our clinical capabilities? 
technologies, communication strategies, uh, uh, hardware, uh, but also clinical uh, skills, and vice versa, that we communicate what are our needs. If we want to go to the moon, and if you don't get a good countermeasure device to mitigate bone loss, uh, we have a problem. Please, science, help us uh, in getting a good uh, device or getting more uh, expertise and uh, scientific knowledge. So that is a very distinct separation between those two entities, but more and more all agencies now have those gap fillers uh, employed uh, because we learned uh, through losing a lot of money that not talking to each other is also not a good idea. Um, communication is a key element. We need to communicate uh, with the crew, but also when the crew is in Tokyo, for example, we have to ship all the uh, medical files back and forth. Uh, we don't want to see the medical file on CNN or in a newspaper the next day, so we have an IT team that is heavily involved in making all the communication links uh, available. Um, we have to train the medical crew. Uh, they get, uh, it's in, in uh, the first six semesters, five, six semesters of medical school, in 40 hours of training. It's uh, tough, but at least uh, the basics of nomenclature, of anatomy, of biochemistry, physiology, of course, that they can understand science, but that, can, that they can also uh, communicate with us, um, that they can do first aid, resuscitation, um, emergency medicine. That are the basic skills uh, that we are trying to provide them with. And I also will provide you with a little bit more background information. Um, we're attending like a, like a good physician of a soccer or football or rugby team. Uh, we accompany the crew usually uh, when they go for training into Tokyo, Moscow or whatever. Uh, we're staying with them, with the families. Uh, we ourselves get trained on the complete science package, like the crew as well, because we don't want to say no and veto a medical science experiment just because of lack of knowledge. So the crew surgeon, the flight surgeon, is also learning roughly the, uh, the same stuff that also the crew learns, that we also have an understanding of the science behind, and that we can also look into, okay, one scientist draws 50 milliliters of blood, uh, but then we, at the end we end up with 10 scientists who do 50 milliliters of blood, then it may no longer be a safe operation. So we need to know the overall science complement and what the requirements of the different scientists are. Um, and then at the very end, after a long list of, of tasks, we have the final mission support at the end. Uh, roughly, we assign um, a, uh, an astronaut two years prior to flight. That's when they're primary training starts. At the same time, we assign a physician to the crew. And with increasing intensity, this physician then follows the training flow uh, and the medical uh, tests that the astronauts undergo um, before they launch. So for us, as like with the crew, we start two years out, then half-year flight, half-year post-flight rehabilitation. So it's a roughly three-year stint that uh, all of us then more or less have to, to follow for one mission. Um, that's the current team, um, physicians, biomedical engineers, uh, project IT, education folks, uh, psychologists, fitness team, management, and you will realize that the physicians are the minority. Um, it's not because I like it this way, I really would like to have one or two more physicians because we 
currently have uh, Alex Gast, who is just up there and is landing in two weeks. In three weeks, Samantha is launching. Uh, then we have a short duration flight of the Danish uh, Andy Mogensen. Then we have uh, your countryman um, Timothy Peak. Then we have uh, Thomas Pesquet. So the next uh, three years are filled with one mission after the other. And with the three years uh, preparation time, you can already now assume that those guys are uh, running uh, very often two missions in parallel. Uh, but the technicalities of spaceflight, the engineering background uh, is so immense that as a physician you may not have the full understanding of all the technical implications on health at the end. And that's why we have a huge team of biomedical engineers there, our eyes and ears. They're sitting in, the, in mission control in Cologne uh, and they are monitoring for us the environment of the space station and provide feedback to us and in case a medical decision needs to be made, they are calling us. Of course, uh, they are not allowed to make medical decisions, but everything up to a medical decision they can prepare that we can make an, um, a well-informed uh, medical decision at the end. Well, sit back, relax, we are now going into orbit. <coughs> Okay, six and a half more minutes and they're in orbit. So eight and a half to nine minutes depending on the orbit and the uh, altitude and the inclination. That's about the time you need from sea level to uh, roughly four to 500 kilometers altitude. Well, and then main engine cutoff, MECO, uh, as it is called, then it's weightlessness. Um, and weightlessness is beautiful. But if you look at it from a medical perspective, it also can be a beast. Um, there are some physical laws that uh, we do not usually pay attention to. Action equals reaction, one of the basic principles. Just look at what those guys are doing on the left-hand side, resuscitation. If you are not connected to a stable wall and your patient is not connected while you're doing CPR, the patient is there and I'm there. Action equals reaction. Just a little touch and you're going endlessly in one direction until you hit the wall. So basic things of medicine like resuscitation, CPR, uh, you really need to consider the environment in which you're working. Here it's clear, just 
put the patient on the floor and, and start whatever you need to do. Um, imagine when you were at your family doctor and got a blood draw. Just picture it. How many tiny pieces of plastic caps, extension tubes, etc., are needed to just draw five milliliters of blood? Imagine now the same procedure and weightlessness. Everything floats away. Your alcohol swipes, your blood drops, your little plastic caps. So, of course, blood draw is not different in space, but the logistics around it are different. That's why we do parabolic flights, for example, where we train the crew to do basic things, not only blood draws, but also to uh, get uh, air out of a vial. Uh, for bio biological exam uh, experiments, for example, to fill something without air bubbles. Not only important for medicine, but also for other experiments. Or just imagine surgery in space. When you were last in, in an OR, you had the nurse, you had your instruments next to you, you could just drop your instruments. Well, there is nothing to drop. Where do you put your sterile instruments? You're floating away. So we, we, when we started looking into surgery in space, it's not only the sterile environment, but you also need to find ways, how do you, where do you put your instruments? So what we finally ended up is that you have magnetic uh, magnets in your, in your, uh, in your uh, garments that you can just put your instrumentation on your body. But things of that, uh, just as an example, uh, medicine, is medicine, no matter where you do it, and on Mars or Moon or space station, but the environment dictates how you, how you can operate certain things, how you can do certain things. Now we, we are coming to the, to the risks uh, that finally may end up in a medical incidence or in, in a medical problem uh, that we are dealing with. Of course, Everybody thinks, okay, we are in a hazardous environment, uh, we are relying on technical systems for our survival, so failure of the technical systems is a very important uh, aspect. So what can we do to mitigate a risk of a failing equipment is, okay, to being uh, double, triple uh, fault tolerant and really enhancing the technical systems. Um, that, of course, makes sense, is, is, is logic. And we come to the risk factors uh, on the next slide. Then, of course, we may have medical risk related to the space or the microgravity environment itself, the physiological ch uh, changes imposed on the human body that may uh, lead to medical risk, like bone demineralization, more calcium that is excreted from the kidneys, kidney stone formation, etc., as one, one example, for example. Um, then, of course, you have a risk because of the biological system failing. Of course we are doing a good selection of astronauts, we do annual medical checks, we do medical checks prior to launch, but still there is an inherent risk in all of us to get sick, more or less severe. Um, and of course if we have a medical incidence, then of course we need to look into um, the adequate uh, onboard facilities, infrastructure, uh, medications, um, or, or an ambulance that brings us down to, to Earth uh, in case of a very severe incidents. So what can we do to, what are the technical challenges? Of course, life in that little bubble of ISS uh, is dependent on life support systems, uh, 
that maintain the atmosphere, that maintain the uh, PPO2 levels, the appropriate um, CO2 levels, that provide us uh, uh, with waste, uh, with uh, water, with uh, provide us with facilities uh, for wastewater management. Um, we have electrical systems, of course, on board uh, with all the uh, problems that may cause. A fire on board is always a nightmare. An electrical fire, even more. All the beautiful insulating material on cables and wiring that produces toxic byproducts. So you not only have the fire itself, you also have the to toxic byproducts. Um, ISFs uh, was invented, was built many years ago. So please don't make the mistake and assume that this is a high-tech facility up there. It's old from the design and it's old because it's already more than 10 years up there. So there are um, propellants that we are using for uh, um, um, attitude control that are uh, highly toxic, hydrazine for example. Um, and of course there may be a leak uh, into the cabin if there is any line that may be leaking. Or astronauts going outside having maybe hydrazine fuel on the EVA suit and they come back into the ISS and then have the hydrazine back into the ISS uh, environment. Uh, those are uh, Im important things to know and that things that we are monitoring that if we see certain hydrazine leaks um, on our monitors, on, on uh, uh, our displays, that we provide the crew with the appropriate steps for cleanup. Um, Again, it's an aging uh, station. Uh, we, we don't have the typical cooling agents that we use in our refrigerators. We have Freon, we have glycol. So also there, and cooling is an important part of the space station. And cooling leaks are, I wouldn't say common, but they happen uh, every year, maybe once or twice. So this is an ongoing problem. If you have a leaking uh, refrigerator at home, it's not a big problem. In a confined environment, it becomes a big problem. Noise. Uh, we have uh, intensive noise levels on board ISS. Um, nutrition, of course, is an aspect. How do you provide fresh, fruit, uh, fresh food, but also fruit, vegetables uh, on ISS. Microbiology, another item. Uh, we have a beautiful um, um, fungi growing on walls in the hygiene area, etc. And of course, that is a concern not only terrestrially, but that's of course also a concern on ISS. And how do we reduce the amount of, um, of bacteria or fungi to, to get on, on ISS? How do we clean up? That's also a daily business we are dealing with. Radiation, of course, roughly one thorax. Um, uh, image per day, that's roughly the uh, radiation dose. It can be, be much higher if we have a solar minimum, it can be lower if we have a solar maximum. So that is um, a significant radiation dose that the astronauts receive during, um, during half a year or even during their career. And we have two astronauts, two Russian astronauts that have uh, reached their career limit of 400 rems, whole body those 400 rems, now I have to calculate. I'm an old guy. Well, it's, it's far beyond. Uh, in millisievert. 200, that is 4 sievert, yeah. Okay. Um, and because they reached their, their, their lifetime uh, dose and are no longer allowed to fly uh, into space. That is something we're also continuously monitoring. 
If we look into the physiological changes, of course, um, I don't want to provide too much detail here, but of course we have an impact on the neurovestibular system. Weightlessness distorts our senses, our sensory inputs coming from the eye, from the vestibular system, and makes everybody uh, nauseated at the beginning. Um, 10, 15 years ago, I would not have been allowed to tell you that 70 to 80% of the astronauts get sick the first one, two, three days because astronauts are the right stuff. And as a test pilot and the right stuff, you don't get sick. And you don't like to be that this is uh, talked about. Um, and of course, uh, the pressure for the early space flights was tremendous to be assigned to a flight. And of course, they, always, they were fighting for very rare slots to be able to, f to be allowed to fly into space. And that was also still in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, when you had short-duration flights. And if you, of course, spent millions for a 10-day space lab flight, and an astronaut is not capable to perform his or her duties for two days, that has a tremendous also financial impact and, of course, science impact. So nobody wanted to talk about that, that he or she may get sick. Um, the problem is also that, uh, in, in difference to the Russians, who believe that you can test for space motion sickness and can train against space, space motion sickness, we say, well, no. Um, you can, uh, we have astronauts that only need to hear the word boat, and they start vomiting immediately. They go into space and never have a problem, and vice versa. So we have the same symptoms of, a, uh, um, of, of, of that um, motion uh, sickness, uh, but apparently there are different triggers and there are different um, uh, ways that the, the, uh, the symptoms are expressed and are not necessarily, you cannot forecast from somebody who gets sick on a roller coaster also gets sick in space and vice versa. Training, the Russians always said, well, we put them on a rotary, uh, rotating chair and uh, on all fancy equipment. Well, the Russians also had a very famous scientist. It was, his name was Pavlov. You can condition people to get sick. We had our astronauts that told me in the morning, Volker, I need to go to building three to the rotating chair. I'm already sick now. They connected the smell of that building or the smell of, of the KC-135, the parabolic flight we used in Houston, uh, that somebody already got, some people already got sick. So um, we don't do those tests anymore uh, that we did in the, uh, in the early times, uh, like a rotating chair, like centrifuge runs, uh, to test for uh, motion sickness. We just give them promethazine, 50 milligrams, intramuscular that sedates you, even an elephant. Uh, but if you're sitting on, on a rocket like that, your adrenaline, of course, makes you, uh, keeps you awake. But the first night sleep usually is something that the astronauts report is very good because maybe of the promethazine. Um, and that also alleviates the effects of a potential space motion sickness. Cardiovascular uh, issues, it's a non-issue um, because most of the astronauts have learned to be cardiovascular, uh, have a fit cardiovascular system. They do sport, 
um, they do the uh, two hours of exercise per day on ISS. So the cardiovascular deconditioning is not a major issue. The autostatic intolerance when they come back and have to stand upright against gravity again and when then all of a sudden the, the blood drains low and they start getting paler and paler and then go into the horizontal. That's a different thing. But the cardiovascular system itself, usually within uh, seven days, the first seven days post-flight, we reach the same VO2 max like pre-flight again. There. Usually we really try to keep them very, very fit. Uh, the same is then true, of course, for muscles. We do resistive exercise to keep also the strength uh, and the forces uh, in, in good shape. The demineralization of bones, that is uh, still an unknown where we don't know what are really the effects, what are the underlying physiological changes. Uh, we, there are new ways of doing countermeasures on board ISS to stimulate the bone formation, but there is still a lot of research going on, which is very interesting because bone loss and demineralization is, of course, also a big terrestrial issue um, that we have to deal with. VIIP, I don't want to go into detail, we can talk afterwards, that is visual impairment and intracranial pressure. It is something that we found out four years ago, just by coincidence, that apparently some astronauts suffer from an elevated intracranial pressure, which we cannot measure, but the outcome of an elevated intracranial pressure is that your uh, eyeballs get compressed from, from, uh, um, from, from the back. So we see um, uh, orbit, uh, um, eye globe uh, changes. We see um, um, uh, cotton wool spots. We see, um, ah, I come to that. Well, everything that looks like a patient that you would have with an after a head trauma that comes into your ICU um, or ER uh, with an uh, elevated intracranial pressure which made us very worrisome, of course. What is behind that? And we still have no answer. And it is very strangely affecting only some astronauts and those astronauts repetitively if they fly again. It is usually only one eye and not both eyes. It is a very strange thing. And we still, we look at all different uh, aspects. Is it really a true intracranial uh, elevated pressure? Is it uh, that too much cerebral fluid is produced or the absorption is reduced or the venous flow is somehow um, uh, hindered? Um, is it the CO2 level on board the station, which are usually very uh, high and uh, elevated and CO2 is a good trigger for intracranial pressure increase? We don't know, uh, but that is a big field of uh, discussion and, and research currently. Um, Okay, what do we see in terms of space environment? Uh, some, something that surprised us, which is not surprising, are eye injuries. Here the, no, it's, there, here's no dirt, no, but in principle, if there would be dirt, the dirt would be on the ground. In space, the dirt is everywhere. So if you fly weightlessless through the space station with your eyes open, there's glass, metal, breadcrumbs, whatever. So that is one or the main reason why we see eye injuries and foreign bodies in the eye rather soon. That also made us change the uh, ultrasound equipment we have on board, that the astronauts are trained for self-ultrasound to check for foreign bodies, to locate them and to help them, guide them 
to remove foreign bodies, especially if, if, if it's glass or metal, which is, of course, a rare occasion. Usually it's really breadcrumbs or just dust uh, or other uh, or fabrics um, uh, that get caught. Um, kidney stones, um, that is another medical nightmare which happened once uh, on board uh, a space station, so a Russian space station. Um, as I already mentioned, uh, you have bone demineralization, more calcium excreted through the kidneys. And uh, in case one of you guys wants to apply to become an astronaut, there usually is a question, uh, have you ever had a kidney stone or do you currently have a kidney stone? If you answer yes, you're out. You can forget about the career as, a, as an astronaut. Exactly for that reason. If you already have the predisposition for stone formation, the risk is too high that this uh, is happening in your career as well. Uh, uh, skin infections. Something that was completely surprising at the beginning when the astronauts after some time said, well, it's itching and uh, it's red and I don't know. It's, uh, we didn't have any tools, no high-resolution cameras to really look for it. Until we got them, we really were a little bit astonished. Well, there's another physical law or a physical phenomenon which does not exist in weightlessness, and that is convection. There is no convection in weightlessness. So the whole cooling system of our body is also not working appropriately. Usually, if, if you would not move and just breathe, you would suffocate from your own CO2 that you're exhaling because the CO2 is not going down like here. Uh, it's not going anywhere. Um, the same uh, with heat. If you have a flame on, on, uh, in weightlessness, it's barely, uh, 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 the flame is barely visible because it self-suffocates. So there is no convection, no adequate cooling, um, and that of course leads that you have uh, sweat located under your armpits, for example. It's a beautiful environment for bacteria and fungi. Moist, warm, no evaporation. And that is something which we, an issue that we addressed, and uh, there are more hygiene pads now available to, for self-cleaning. There is no shower, un unfortunately, <laughs> on board the space station, but that uh, is another um, uh, medical issue that we are dealing more or less regularly. Um, the other elements that are listed there are very marginal. Um, we barely see any infections because we send all the astronauts into quarantine. They're not allowed to see their children. Um, the last uh, seven days prior to flight because children, all of you who have children know the nightmare of childcare, child coming back from childcare and then you have all the nice flus and infections. That's uh, the normal way of parents. Um, psychiatric, psychological issues luckily uh, should not happen. Uh, they happened in the past. Uh, there was one space flight that was uh, aborted because of psychological issues, because the crew was not able to talk with each other anymore. Um, then, of course, you need to know why did that happen, what did we do wrong in the selection, um, what can be done better in the, in, in, in the training flow, in the human behavior and performance program. Um, again, in low Earth orbit, it's not that much of an, of, of an issue. You can come back very quickly and easily, and you can get help from on the ground very quickly, but if you're en route to Mars, um, that's a completely different, uh, different story. <coughs> okay, if then the, everything breaks and we have a medical problem, then of course uh, we have to look what can we do. 
and um, there we have we are self-limited in terms of what we have, what capabilities we have on board. We have very limited resources on board. One kilogram up upload is twenty-five thousand euros. Twenty-five thousand. So one liter of saline solution, if you have a burn up there, is twenty-five thousand euros. So we have two liters of saline, by the way. That's all infusion we have. So if you now come, just come from medical school and say, well, that's unethical. Well, yeah. It is. It is extremely limited what you have in terms of resources. So again, the reason, you, you better make sure that certain things don't happen or that your crew is very, very stable and very healthy. Uh, but again, still, you can have a medical issue. We had fire on board. We had rapid decompressions. So it's nothing out of the, not of the ordinary. It's not, not nothing that I'm, I'm just dreaming about and um, science fiction. Those are incidences that, that are happening and did happen. And then uh, you have to be very smart uh, to find ways uh, on returning the crew safely. Um, pharmacology, that's somebody who may be interested in doing some research in the future. We have no idea about pharmacodynamics and kinetics. No idea whatsoever. We just assume that an aspirin works in space as it does in, on, on Earth. Nobody has ever tested that. There are no studies. Um, so we don't know if we overdose or underdose. Um, this was something which was never in, of the interest of the science community. Um, there are now, uh, at least with the, with the upcoming genomics and pharmacogenomics, uh, we are now looking into... Um, uh, um, oh. I'm missing the term again. Well, um, well, of course, you have people who are um, uh, uh, slow metabolizers or, or fast metabolizers. Polymorphism, that's it. If you have genetic polymorphism, we are testing for genetic polymorphism in our astronauts to at least uh, check uh, if we replace some drug with another alternate drug, um, just to take care that uh, some astronauts um, may not be or may not be well treated with a certain painkiller or antibiotic uh, or motion sickness uh, medication. But still there's a lot of research that needs to be done. Um, we have to maintain the skills, the medical skills. Uh, it's, half, it's a half year mission uh, and they learned it maybe a year prior to the flight. They had a medical training course. Uh, so how do you maintain the medical skill that they are still uh, sufficiently trained to provide medical care? And not maybe for low Earth orbit, but if we leave Earth and go to Moon and Mars, uh, other aspects uh, come to mind, like ethical aspects, triage decisions. If you are en route to Mars and you have a severely injured crew member or sick crew member, and you already know you're using up all your infusion kits, your medications, and you still need to fly for two years and return. So what guidelines can we give the astronauts in ethical uh, uh, perspective. That is a huge discussion that is currently ongoing. What, how can we help them? Can we provide them with technical uh, solutions to go through certain scenarios, treatment scenarios, to look what is the most efficient one, which may be one that is most, most uh, successful by uh, retaining or being uh, efficient in, in terms of not um, wasting all of our resources. 
So if we are now looking into the risk assessments, we can roughly say that um, uh, for some, in, let's say, a comparable um, population of our astronauts, that roughly you have a risk of 6 to 7% per person per year to see uh, an emergency room and 1 to 2% per person per year to uh, be hospitalized. Uh, this is maybe not the generic population risk assessment. That is really done by analog, looking into analogs uh, and uh, uh, the longitudinal astronaut study that we are doing together with NASA to look into what are the risk factors common to that population of astronauts. So now let's go back into our technical and environmental risks. So... With those numbers, we would have to see one medical incidence per five and a half years for hospitalization. So, or three in 15 years. So that's pretty high risk. One in every five and a half years, you would expect somebody to see a hospital. If we now compare it, radiation event, one every 60 years a hit by a micrometeorite or this beautiful movie, Destiny, uh, one in 214 years. System malfunction, one in 750 years. Well, you can believe it or not. Of maybe the engineers are over-optimistic. <laughs> but it's more, it's, it just should uh, highlight that the, uh, the human system is, of course, is the weakest system on, on board. So from a medical perspective, that is a rather high risk. Well, I told you, space station is in operation, I think, 12 or 13 years now. We have not seen one. So either we are damn lucky, or we are doing something right. Uh, or the statistic is wrong, I don't know. But m most likely all of the, all of the above. Uh, of course, the astronauts are much more thoroughly screened than, than other people. Um, and I think there is a certain amount of, of luck as well. Uh, we had some developing medical issues that then were self-limiting or we could intervene early enough because we have good monitoring, which usually you may not have at home. You may say, well, it's not that bad. I can, well, another day or two. Oh, well, I'm going to see the doctor maybe in a week from now. And then it hits you. That is something that is not hitting the astronauts. We hope that they tell us early early on if something is bothering them. And that may be a reason why we don't see that high rate. Um, to mitigate the risk, um, we uh, have a control center. Of course, either you have Mission Control Houston, which is known to everybody, and by the way, Apollo 13 is a must-do and must-view movie in my office as well, because it's very close to reality. It very well depicts the way how decision-making processes are done in a very complex engineering scenario uh, where you have a flight director, where you have engineers that represent the different technical systems on board and one system on board is the human being and the surgeon is or the physician is the representative of the medical uh, system. Um, we have our own medical control center in, uh, in Cologne. Um, not we, because we don't like it in Houston, but we thought, well, we are grown-ups. Um, we learned with the Americans, and I'm very thankful of be, having been allowed to work in Mission Control Houston, but then there's also a time when you want to say, well, okay, let's now do it in, in Europe and not spend the money and the European taxpayers' money in, 
in sponsoring American companies. So keep it in, in Europe. Um, and there's another example I come uh, in a few minutes. Um, so that's where we monitor the technical systems, the life support systems, and of course also the, also the medical, uh, uh, the, the, the human being him, him or herself. But we don't have any ECG or blood pressure measurements uh, routinely every minute. We do it once every four weeks that we do a medical checkup. So there, if you come to our medical control room, there is barely any medical data. Uh, it's only once per month we do a fitness check and once per month we do a medical check. Of course, if there's a medical incidence, then we have all the tools available, high resolution cameras, ultrasound, uh, high definition uh, f uh, yeah, cameras, etc., to guide the astronauts and to help them uh, solving a medical issue. Um, we are also responsible um, for the timeline and scheduling, that, which may sound a little bit odd, but uh, in the 60s, 70s, spaceflight was an adventure, even though you are not allowed to say it's an adventure because it costs millions. Uh, but even now, it's an adventure. It's something that mankind, not many people do. And I think adventure is, an, is, is not a bad word. Uh, adventure means uh, being, uh, looking behind, behind the scenes, trying to, to advance, to, to enhance knowledge. Uh, that is part of ad adventure as well. But it's also a job. It's a career, it's a profession. And so the medical uh, unit is also representing the medical, the professional, the occupational um, rights of, of the astronauts. So we have clear plans, like in a union, 10 hours of work maximum per day, eight hours of sleep, at least scheduled sleep. I don't care if they sleep three hours or five hours usually, but eight hours are blocked for sleep. Two hours of, of uh, uh, sport, enough time for private communication, enough time for uh, waking up in the morning, getting to bed in the evening, uh, listening to music, etc. Uh, so this timeline is built um, already months to weeks prior to a specific day. For example, just this Monday we started with the first week, first two weeks of the timeline of Samantha and she's uh, launched uh, beginning of December. So we already now put all the elements together and as physicians we monitor that they get enough sleep, that they are not shifted. Um, nobody cares when I fly to Houston with uh, uh, seven time zones in between. But we monitor the astronauts. There's an, we are not allowed to move them more than three hours west per day and uh, two hours east, I think, uh, per day. Uh, so that in, if we have to modify that uh, daily schedule, which is usually GMT-based, but sometimes if there is a docking of a new vehicle, then we need to shift the crew that their awake time is uh, while, the, uh, while the vehicle is docking, not that they're sleeping when the new crew is arriving. That would not be uh, a good idea, but orbital mechanics you cannot change, so you have to change the crew. So that's a very important aspect, and then experiments and hazards. Uh, that's why we are also trained uh, with the science uh, program. We need to know what are the potential hazards. If the biologists do some cell fixation, all those fixation fluids are highly toxic uh, or eye irritants uh, or whatever. So we should know if, there is, if the astronaut reports, hey, I have a leak of that stuff. Can somebody tell me what it is? We should know, okay, it has a hazard label of three or whatever, and then uh, you have to wear the goggles and you have to do this and that. Uh, so that is a, a usual element of our work. But also protecting science. It would not be a good idea that we schedule treadmill exercise of the whole crew or two crew members 
at the same time when the physicist is trying uh, to um, create a new alloy or uh, to build a protein crystal. Can you imagine what the station is doing? When the people are running, the whole station vibrates. There is no microgravity anymore. And you ruin the science. Because we did our job to have them exercising, but we are destroying science. So we also have to understand that we better move our, our exercise out of the way or we move the science to another time that those can coexist. It also is not a good idea that you do a major blood draw while ATV is doing a reboost maneuver and accelerating the station. <laughs> so that, those are elements that the biomedical engineers primarily are monitoring. They are responsible for the timeline and trying to build it up and looking into the, say, the human aspects but also the technical and the scientific aspects. Um, to reduce the risk of the human being failing, um, we have the selection criteria, and I will walk you through the selection. We do an annual medical check uh, with the astronauts. It's similar to the routine annual check that also airline pilots or military pilots have to undergo. Rather similar in, in, in scope, um, uh, with a few highlights here and there where we are differing a little bit, but primarily it's, it has the same content as a um, as a sound and solid professional um, pilot examination. Um, ten days prior to the mission, we also have another medical check just to clear them, say, okay, you're fit for flight. Uh, there's another very brief one three days prior, just to be sure. We have the quarantine eight days prior to launch uh, since Apollo 13 that was uh, implemented uh, because that one guy dropped out because of measles, which he never had, but at least he was replaced. Uh, Mattingly, Ken Mattingly, and then flew on the shuttle at uh, one time later on. Um, we trained two astronauts as crew medical officers that they can serve as a physician on board and help uh, providing medical care uh, to the crew immediately or via the physician on the ground can relay medical information to the crew. Um, we have, as I mentioned, some medical infrastructure, and i just show you uh, in a few moments some pictures of the huge medical infrastructure we have. We have routine private medical conferences uh, in the beginning every day, then once per week. Um, 10 minutes, 15, no, 15 minutes um, located to us where we can talk uh, with the crew like a patient-doctor patient, uh, uh, talk. Um, we do it because uh, just imagine the crew would ask and say, um, hey, I need a doctor. Then you have worldwide all the media on your back. So even if we don't have a medical issue, this is a scheduled event. And with that, we avoid that uh, any media gets suspicious that there is a medical problem. Of course, the crew can always ask. But a good crew surgeon has a secret language with a crew. So, of course, the crew would not necessarily call on the open loops. And the American um, Constitution says that everything that is funded by taxpayers' money has to be made public. So you can monitor the air-to-ground everywhere uh, worldwide. Um, and if then somebody says, hey, I need a physician, uh, it's not a good idea. So we have some secret terminology among us. Um, of course, we also look into the uh, family um, setup. Uh, we are also, because we are working together with the, with the astronauts very long, for two years at least, 
uh, we know the family situation. We also try to find out what if, what if there is a catastrophic event, what if uh, your, your children get sick or your mother dies or whatever. So what are we communicating? How are we communicating? That is also part of the human behavior and performance program. Or the, uh, we share it between the psychologists and us. It depends uh, to whom the, the crew has the, the, the better link. We have psychological conferences, private conferences as well, uh, every two weeks. And every week on Sundays, uh, the crew has uh, open-ended two-way audio-video conferences uh, wherever they are in the world. And that's also another task of our biomedical engineers. They have to make sure that we have the satellite time, that we have the equipment at the location where the family is, etc. So that's also a pretty uh, daunting um, uh, job to really take care of all those uh, communication links and also to make them private. Uh, that, of course, is then the other element that we don't want to have anything leaked out. Um, this is now a new slide because we, d we are doing something completely new. Uh, I already talked about growing up. Uh, so when we first came up with the idea we want to have our own medical control room, that was 99, 2000, roughly. NASA said, what do you want? And okay, now we established it. It's normal. Uh, and NASA is also relying that we take a lot of work away from them and handle it in Cologne and then provide feedback to the main mission control in Houston. Um, but another thing was that astronauts are usually, when they drop in the middle of nowhere in Kazakhstan, um, that they then return usually to Moscow. That was the normal uh, way, but then uh, NASA said, well, we don't like that our astronauts go to Moscow and are medically uh, monitored and medically taken care of in Moscow, we would like to have the astronauts flying back to Houston. Um, so they have a Gulfstream 3, which is a beautiful airplane, but I think not fit for the transatlantic flight in three hubs. So it is uh, Kustanay in Kazakhstan, for example. It's uh, then uh, Edinburgh or uh, Prestwick. Scotland, then it is, depending on wind, uh, Gander, it may be Maine, and then Houston. Uh, it's a very tough thing. The crew likes it because uh, they are back in, 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 in Houston very quickly, 24 hours roughly, the flight time all, uh, all in all. Um, but on us, uh, it was very tough because we had to completely change our logistics. We had all the infrastructure, everything in Moscow. And from one day to another, NASA said, well, we are going to Houston. Um, I was pretty angry at that time. And I had the dream and said, well, if, the, if NASA can do a direct return, as they called it, to Houston, we can do it as well to Cologne. Cologne is even closer. Um, everybody said, well, Volker, you're stupid. Um, that's <laughs> not going to work. Well, in two weeks, we have it the first time. So Alex is returning directly to uh, Cologne. Uh, DLR, the German Space Agency, has a beautiful new building called EnviHab, which is a primarily a science uh, a laboratory, which is half underground. It looks like a UFO that just landed back here in the shadow. That's the European Astronaut Center. So we are close by, and the picture is taken from the German Institute of Aerospace Medicine. So you see ESA, EnviHab, um, DLR Medicine, and in the future, in two years, the uh, Institute of Aviation Medicine of the German Air Force, which is currently in Munich, will be closed down and will be relocated just here. So we have space, civilian medicine, 
um, uh, military aviation medicine and a huge facility in, in a close vicinity. And this facility uh, has a crew quarter where we can, where now uh, Laura, Alex, uh, uh, spouse and can live, uh, the crew surgeon has a room, our scheduler has a room, our science people can use uh, the laboratories uh, to do the scientific uh, data takes, we can use the flight clinic plus the facilities to do the medical monitoring. We have all our rehabilitation infrastructure. We have the grand opening next Monday, completely rebuilt. We have uh, three Tesla magnetic resonance imaging, which was a prerequisite uh, for doing uh, all the head uh, imaging post-flight. So that will be um, a new uh, thing. So we are now 16, um, so out of puberty. So that's the next step. And uh, I hope that I will still see that we are also launching people into space, but that's maybe too far-fetched. Um, this election, uh, we did it in 2008, 2009, one year, uh, three years preparation. That's why we also thought, let's do it every five years, it will be less costly um, than doing it every 10, 15 uh, years when you have to more or less restart and reinventing the wheel again. Um, but most likely the next election will be some years away from now. We expected more than 10,000 applicants because it was the first time that we did the um, selection online where you can, were just able to hit a submit button to, to, to start your, select, uh, your selection program. Um, luckily, this didn't happen, uh, maybe because of one clever trick we did. You could apply online on the website and fill in your basic data, but then you were requested to upload a JAR-3 pilot medical license. Hmm. Before you get your user ID and password. Well, you have to look where, where is the next aeromedical center. You had to put money on the table. And at least when you got the certificate, we were sure that nobody would show up in Hamburg for the psychological tests with no limbs or no eyesight or in a wheelchair. So that the basic medical tests were done. Oops, uh, but to be honest, nobody looked at that. It was just a hurdle to jump. To avoid that 80-year-old or 6-year-old children, and that's not a joke, that's what happened in previous uh, selections, hit the submit button. It's so easy. So there you had to be active and had to provide and upload a uh, medical certificate. So with that, we ended up in uh, eight, eight and a half thousand online applications. They were computer-based evaluated to roughly 2,000 that were manually evaluated um, because there was free text and before a decision was made that somebody was deselected at that stage, uh, at least two people had to look into that. So we ended up with 920 that went through that online evaluation that went to Hamburg for the initial psychological selection for cognitive function testing. So that was the typical things you also do with many airline pilots uh, where you check for memory capabilities, um, spatial orientation, uh, etc. Uh, like in airline industry, that is a... Uh, you reduce significantly from 920 to 190. Only 190 passed that cognitive uh, function testing 
and went into the second stage for psychological testing, assessment center. That's where we really do personality testing, um, um, teamwork assessment, team uh, or, um, um, issue uh, resolution in a team or individually. Um, and from 190, 45 were left, and they went through the medical evaluations. Full week. Um, and from 45, 22 were declared fit psychologically and physically. And uh, out of those, then the, our selection process were, were, was over. And then, of course, there were more professional interviews and then, of course, some political massaging, uh, who you finally select. Uh, and instead of four, as uh, we started off, then there were six that were finally selected at the end. Um, and all six, uh, as I mentioned, already have flight assignments or have flown. Luca already has flown, Alex uh, is in flight, and the other four are already uh, uh, assigned to missions. Well, if we then have a medical issue on board and we need to evacuate, uh, in the uh, 90s there was a brilliant vehicle called the, well, different names, a crew rescue vehicle, um, all different names, but it has had this uh, parachute and was able to land almost all over the world. Uh, capacity of six, uh, of seven, with full medical infrastructure. You could have an intubated uh, patient on board and could land. Uh, that was the design. Um, and at that time, we were following the paradigm stabilize and transport. Like in terrestrial medicine, if you have an accident, injured um, person, you stabilize the person, you wait for the ambulance to come, and then you go to a definite healthcare facility. That was our idea. The program managers loved it. They said, hey, great, oh, you don't need x-ray. You don't need ultrasound. You don't need uh, IV fluids. You don't need that because you stabilize. You only need the basics for emergency medicine, and then you have this beautiful vehicle. You come down and fine. So we made many program managers very happy. Uh, but then the politicians <laughs> deleted that beautiful thing. So we don't have a vehicle. The only rescue vehicle is Soyuz. Luckily, in difference to Mediterranean ferries, we have as many lifeboats as people on board. So there are currently always at least two Soyuzes on board so that we can either evacuate the whole ISS with six or at least three at a time. Uh, but if you look at that very hmm, interesting landing uh, in the middle of nowhere, it, it takes you three hours on helicopters to reach anything in the vicinity uh, which looks like a hospital, um, makes it very tough to maintain your stabilize and transport paradigm. So we told program managers, okay, now you have to beef up our medical infrastructure. And say, oh, <laughs> your money is already spent, forget it. So what we now call it is stand and fight. With the limited resources we have, we cannot support stabilize and transport. We just hope, we just have to hope for the best, that nothing really happens. I'm sorry to be so open, but that's, it, it is this way. That's our medical kit. Aha. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there's not that much. We have, of course, uh, the crew medical officer is trained to do the basic uh, medical stuff, including uh, extracting teeth or filling a tooth, um, uh, suturing, lacerations. So it's, it's, it's like a well-trained paramedic, maybe in some sort of. 
we also emerged them into a three-day medical field course where the um, astronauts go into the uh, uh, Cologne clinic um, and they drive on the ambulance, on the, uh, uh, they, they are in the OR. And it was primarily Alex, who was currently up there, who said, well, Volker, I'm a geologist. I've never seen blood in my life. And I don't want to see blood the first time when I have to help one of my crew members. Can't you do something in the clinic? And that's when we, uh, Ben Douglas, our flight surgeon, then came up with the idea to create this uh, three-day medical field course where they are really emerged in the day-to-day -day business. That they also see how is it managed. Uh, 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 and, and Cologne is, of course, like every big city, you see a lot of traumas every day. Uh, how do you manage uh, that? You not necessarily need to have hands-on. A good physician can also say, you do this, you do that, you do that. Um, and I think that was a major improvement of their, of their training. We have medical checklists, bilingual in, in Russian and, um, and English, with all the medication lists that change every flight and every astronaut uh, stores stuff in a different uh, location. We uh, have medical hardware, basic supplies. We have medical, uh, emergency medical kits, defibrillator, intubation stuff, cleanup kit, etc but it's very limited, plus an ultrasound now uh, on board, but that's, that's about it. Um, and then we do some testing uh, also with the crew on parabolic flights uh, that they uh, know how to fix uh, a patient, where to put the uh, medical kit, how to contain fluids, for example, if uh, there is a uh, venous bleeding or arterial bleeding, uh, etc. I'm already over time. Um, I would now show the video with a different music in the right order. Uh, it also has subtitles, sublines, where it is, and maybe especially the uh, UK is visible very often. It's, uh, so I thought that maybe you can dim the light a little bit. And the northern lights, thunderstorms very often to be seen, Black Sea, Cyprus. And that's all that is protecting us. So that's always amazing, the thin layer of atmosphere. Chicago. here
Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Trekkie, uh, after that. There are so many things that uh, Star Trek, uh, even in the 60s, um, thought about, dreamed about, and they became reality. If I look at my iPhone, for example, or... Uh, and by the way, there is a, a big price to win for the uh, tricorder. So it's a public, uh, it's a, an X prize for the tricorder. So if you are inventive, do so. Well, um, that is the typical paradigm, sitting in mission control and monitoring as a physician from the ground. Uh, at that time, I was primarily feeding Phil with M&Ms, but okay. That. Um, but if you look in, in, um, in, in, in uh, Star Trek, you don't even need to go to Star Trek. You can go to Columbus. You can go to every uh, um, uh, exploration that mankind has done. There was always a physician on board. And there, for good reasons, there is a physician on board. And usually it was a surgeon. That's why we are still called flight surgeons, so even though we are not surgeons, but we're surgeons. Um, but uh, you had bones as a, as a physician on board. And if you now look into the uh, next generation, they replace the physician by a hologram. You don't even need a name, bones, well, doctor. And the beauty is you can turn it off as an astronaut. So if, if you don't like the advice of a physician, shut up. Um, well, the reason I'm putting that is if we want to, want to go further to Moon and Mars and want to explore... Um, there are people who dream about telemedicine, for example. And, of course, telemedicine is beautiful, and telemedicine is useful, and telemedicine is used terrestrially in many areas, Canada, Australia, as Gre uh, Greece, in, uh, in Europe, as, as, as countries that routinely utilize it. But telemedicine on Moon may be, on Mars, forget it. If uh, on Mars the astronaut says, I have an arterial bleeding, and you have to wait 40 minutes for an answer, the issue is resolved. Um, so telemedicine does not work if you leave low Earth orbit or have communication delays more than a few seconds. So you have to, the only thing we can do is uh, have autonomy on board. We need to provide physicians that are capable of uh, providing medical care on board and having the appropriate medical infrastructure. Don't want to go through all the, the, the details, but if we now come to the crew physician, we have to look into how do we select such a poor physician who needs to treat from an infection, an appendicitis, gynecologic problem, everything. How do you select somebody? How do you keep somebody current? How do you... Um, what technology do you provide to that person to make a decision and an efficient decision because um, the, uh, the resources will always be rather limited. So you better make a good medical decision that protects your resources as well. So one element is to also bring space medicine into a normal academic pathway that maybe in a couple of years instead of becoming a family pr practitioner or a urologist, you also become, you become a space physician, whatever. So we started that uh, with King's, uh, the Masters in Space Physiology and Health. We would like to go beyond also in the medical domain. So Dave, Dave, thank you. That is always great uh, to, to start that, but 
we really would like to go into a more European Space Medicine Academy to connect with other uh, academic institutions to move that uh, element forward. Uh, there is one thing called dead weight. So I already told you my discussions with the program managers in, in, in Stabilize and Transport. The program manager will always ask, okay, you put a physician on board, but that person is dead weight. What the hell is he doing? Three years, nothing, because you have proven that nobody gets sick. So if you have a physician on board, nobody gets sick. What is that person doing all day? It's costly. It's dead weight. So we also have to look into, can we modify the dead weight into something meaningful? So can a physician also be a geologist, for example, or a biochemist, or a scientist, so that his, her capabilities are used for scientific purposes, for mission uh, to uh, meet mission objectives and not only be there as a physician? Or can you think that maybe a geologist becomes a physician? I don't know, but at least that will be something that is... Here are British pounds and euros and dollars attached to that term and to that crew physician. So that will be uh, the next battle we have to fight and have to get clever uh, ways in, into how to protect our... Uh, flight surgeon and, and space medicine um, um, uh, profession. From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.